0: Again, Luke 12, verses 22 to 32, page 744. Do not be anxious. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a smaller thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Great to be with you guys this morning and worship with you. Great time of worship this morning. Uh, how are we doing? Great. <laughs> There's a good, the greats. One of these days I'm expecting someone to say, terrible, stomp and walk out. But until then, <clears> then, <throat> you know what? As a church, we would accept you and love you still. I hope we would. Uh, that's part of what it means to love like Jesus loved. And we're glad you're here this morning to try to love Jesus back with us, because he has so much, very much loved us. Last week, we began a four-part mini-series called Paradox, getting what you want, but not how you wanted to get it. A paradox is a statement or a proposition that seems self-contradictory but in reality expresses a possible truth. Last week, for instance, we talked about freedom through slavery. And the Bible actually talks about this. The the freest free you can be is actually through total and radical submission, sold outness to God. God wants to show you his grace in many different forms, including freedom. But the way you and I try to get that grace... It's the opposite of how we think we should get it, or how we would want to get it. God is asking us, do you trust me? Will you trust my way, or trust your own devices? Me, for instance, I usually choose my own devices, which is why I'm preaching to myself this morning as well. So this morning's paradox, strange, seems contradictory, but could actually be true, and I would say is, is abundance through monogamy. Abundance through monogamy. Abundance refers to a wealth or superfluous amount of things. While monogamous, kind of an interesting word, has a Greek prefix mono, meaning one, and then the Greek word for marriage tacked onto it. Monogamous. One marriage being committed to one person above all others for a lifetime. That's the idea, okay? Just get that out there. I'm wearing a t-shirt this morning that says, you see it, monogamous and living large. What? Monogamous and living large. Because I'm pretty sure it's been a solid, maybe, I don't know, century since you've heard anyone couple I'm living large or I'm living the good life with yeah, it's because I'm monogamous. <laughs> right? You just don't hear that a lot. Yeah, man, things are going well for you. Living the good life. Yeah, my monogamy. <laughs> Where is that? Unless you walk away saying that this morning. Unless you're a person who possesses a singularly focused pursuit and experiences abundant provision. One pursuit, yet many things. It seems strange to us. Jesus Christ describes such a person in Luke 12, as Jen read for us. Let's, look a clo- let's take a closer look at this bizarre concept of abundance through monogamy. In Luke 12. Now, first of all, whenever you read a passage in the Bible, pay attention to A, repeated words and phrases you see over and over again. I mentioned this to you before but also pay attention be especially in the new testament which was written in greek to action or commanding verbs particularly when they're at the beginning of sentences right doing things acting on things this morning we see this we have both here in this passage in the repeated and commanding which is an imperative verb seek we see it in verse 29 verse 30 verse 31 all at the beginning of the respective sentences. Why is this so important? Why pay attention to this? Because such a verb usually constitutes a speaker's main point. This is a big deal. This is what I'm telling you to do as a result of what I'm teaching you. How are you supposed to act on this as a result of how I'm encouraging you? So for instance, uh, verse 30. Jesus says, for all the nations of the world seek After these things, and your Father knows that you need them. There are all these abundant provisions in the world. The nations of the world, i.e. most people, make them their singularly focused priority. And they seek them straight away. All right? That's That's not rocket science, right? We see this every day of our lives, around us, and sometimes in our own lives. Jesus is saying, don't make the same mistake. Verse 29 do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink. Be worried about all these things you've got to get for yourself. Don't seek those things as a number one priority. You might get them if you seek them. You might be successful in your pursuit and you'll get the treasure of the treasure hunt, but they'll never satisfy you in and of themselves. But he also says you're going to get them. Here's how. Verse 31, instead, instead of making those things your number one pursuit and priority, instead, seek his kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. You will get both the king who will satisfy you and every provision added on, tacked on. Herein then lies the paradox. You and I tend to think, point A, point B, that's the most direct route. Point A to point B. You learn that in geometry at some point. God willing. But in the Christian life, there is a point C, who is Christ, the king. He is to be sought prior to point B. All right? And, and Luke. 12, Jesus gives us this basic concept of abundance, but through monogamy. Lifelong priority and commitment to the king. But, tales of monogamy, polygamy, abundance, those sorts of fun things are best told through story. We like these things in story form. Why? Because we all wish every story would end with two people being bonded together exclusively, by love and to live happily ever after. The ever after implies all kinds of abundance of happiness. That's what we love. We love these stories. Romantic comedies through you know, Matthew McConaughey and Sarah Jessica Parker. They get together, you know, all these sorts of things, right? Jesus hints at such a story and character in verse 24 here in Luke 12. He mentions King Solomon. Why does he mention King Solomon? Because in talking about flowers and how they're adorned, how beautiful they are, he mentions them because King Solomon would have been known to his audience as the richest, most wealthy person they would have ever known and possibly who ever lived. So I thought this week I'd go back and look at King Solomon's story. Well, I find that monogamy with the abundance and the happy ending and the happily ever after. Well, his story doesn't end in monogamy. Monogamy nor happily ever after, but I believe God wants to teach us something through his story about how both we can seek God's kingdom and why we should seek God's kingdom. So let's look at that together. The story of King Solomon, we're going to breeze through it this morning. You can turn in your Bibles, if we're going to have to turn backwards to chapter 3 of First Kings, and you're going to need a Bible this morning for this. Uh, chapter 3 of First Kings, you can find that on page 243 if you're using one of the Bibles we provided we got these Bibles here in chair pockets. Ask your neighbor. Have them reach down. Go-go gadget arm. You can get there. Make your way. It will happen. Uh, find a Bible. 1 Kings, starting in chapter 3. And what we find is King Solomon seeks first the King of Kings, God. Especially for help in governing God's people. He wants to be a good king. He's a young man. He recognizes this. I want to seek you, Lord. So God comes to Solomon in a dream one night. And he says, basically, ask for anything you wish, Solomon. Right? So so he gets the genie in the bottle moment for God, right? In this dream. Ask for anything you wish. Rub the lamp. Here we go. Let's see how Solomon responds and then God's reply. Starting in verse 7 of chapter 3, 1 Kings. And now, O Lord, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I don't even know how to go out or come in. They say, I don't know how to open doors and shut them. That's what he's saying. <laughs> you know, he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm pretty young. I don't know what I'm doing. Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude. So please give your servant. Here's the one thing I'm going to ask for. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people. So he asks essentially for wisdom. It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked for wisdom. And God said to him, because you have asked for this and have not asked for for yourself, long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, in other words, your enemies dying, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give also what you have not asked. I give you what I have not asked abundant provisions riches, and honors, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, I will lengthen your days. So this is the good moment, right? He seeks God, and what does God do? He does that Luke 12, seek his kingdom, and all these things are given to Solomon as well. Abundant provision. And that's the good part. Uh, Solomon's reign characterized at the beginning by seeking the king of kings for his kingly help, and then the abundant provision follows. And that's sort of our nutshell this morning, in a nutshell. The sermon in a nutshell is this. <laughs> monogamy always results in polyprovision. All right, so we made up two new words this morning, all right, right there, boom, boom. Right, nothing else this morning, you can walk away feeling like you accomplished something. We, we worked on this, two new words, Oxford Dictionary, here we come. All right, we're setting records here at Sunrise Community Church, we love it. <laughs> monogamy is the idea of faithfulness, a faithful relationship or marriage to one God. Theo, meaning God, monogamy. Theomonogamy, polyprovision, multiple provision, provision in abundance if you seek god alone there's going to be polyprovision in your life however what you find is seeking out polyprovisions if you seek that as your more, more stuff more experiences more for me it quickly turns into theopolygamy more gods more idols more things i put number 1 in my life that makes sense if you seek the polyprovisions You get theopolygamy. And that's what happens in the life of Solomon. As the years go by, as his reign as king winds down, listen to how Solomon's reign is now characterized. Skip ahead to 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. read this to you. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian and Hittite women. In other words, he had the whole like, sports illustrated swimsuit issues of the country, all right, going with him there. Not that I, I haven't seen that since I was a teenager, don't worry. All right. All of you are from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, Don't enter into marriages with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they'll turn your heart away after their gods. But the Solomon clung to these in love. He had, (laughs) ah, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. By the way, side note here. I was reading this book by Robert Alter recently. He talks about how, if you actually look in the Old Testament, if you ever wonder, like, why is it that God never, like, strikes people down for polygamy in the Old Testament? But if you actually look, Polygamy was the standard of the day back then. Anytime you see polygamy in the Old Testament, it always results in ruin in people's lives. Whether it's in the actual marriage or in the kids and the rivalries that develop from different moms and different dads, mostly different moms. Interesting side note. His wives turned away his heart. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and not wholly followed, wholly seek the Lord as David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, another god. Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing. He should not go after other gods. He didn't keep what the Lord commanded. You think from what we read, and maybe from what you learned in Sunday school, that it's, it's, it's Solomon's marital polygamy, right? The 700 wives, the 300 concubines, it turned him away from monotheism, right? From the worship of one God. And that's kind of what we're taught. Maybe you've been taught it before. And here's the part then, where the pastor talks about the importance of monogamy and marriage, right? Staying faithful, true to your spouse, and that is important. But that would be wrong. That would be an incorrect sort of diagnosis of what's going on here with Solomon, with his heart, and with his life. Solomon's polygamous relationship with God is what turns him toward a polygamous love life. Polygamy in human relationships, scattered priorities, juggling acts of happiness, and how you seek it inevitably results from a polygamous relationship with God. It starts with you and Him. Let's look closely then at four lessons, four quick lessons we can learn from King Solomon's theopolygamy, going after multiple gods, multiple number ones in his life. Look Back to chapter three. Turn back, I know we're going back and forth here. Back to chapter three, verses one through four. Solomon made a marriage alliance with the Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter, brought her into the city of David until he'd finished building his own house and the house of the Lord, the temple, in other words, and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings at that altar. Theopolygamy often begins with, I want to worship God in my own way. I want to worship God the way I want to worship God. Anybody ever said that before in their lives? Maybe you said it this week. Maybe you said it recently. For Solomon, in the day and age he lived in, the old covenant, God was to be worshipped through priests set apart to offer these sacrifices. It was to be done in a certain place, in a temple actually, that Solomon had yet to build, even though it was God's main task for him in his kingdom and his reign. But Solomon said, You know, I like this other mountain, I like this other place, so I'm going I'm to offer sacrifices there. A thousand burnt offerings. That gives the idea that. This was the exclusive place of worship for Solomon. This is where he went to worship God. This is how he was going to do it, in his own way. God has given us Jesus, and we, the church, are his temple. Ephesians 1 tells us being built up to be a dwelling place for him. And it's represented by a local church, like we are this morning, gathering together, and a church is called by God to appoint pastors and elders and deacons who are our ministry team leaders to lead a church My question is, does this make any difference to your life? Or do you want to just worship God your own way? And I don't want to sound heavy-handed at all, at all. But when a pastor preaches, or an elder makes himself available, when a pastor preaches, do you listen, do you apply? When an elder makes himself available, do you go to him for counsel? Even if you're just going after a service, for for a little coffee, When you're making a big life decision or is it just me and God? Just me and God, maybe my husband or wife, maybe my closest friend. Even write it in, a prayer request on a contact card. We use those things. We pray for you. Go into a community group leader who the pastors and elders have appointed to be the front lines of shepherding the church doesn't matter. Do you participate in any of these opportunities for community or any avenue of service that Sunrise puts forward? Or does the church simply exist to meet a need that you have? A little bit of Sunday morning word and worship, right? That's how I like it, my own way. And Solomon loves God. I believe that he loves God, but he chooses to love God his own way primarily. And it looks like exclusively. And it seems innocent now. It seems innocent now. not this is just my way. As we read later here in, in, in chapter 11, worshiping the true God exclusively, my own way leads to Theopolygamy, It leads to blatant, Worship and idolatrization of other gods, of other things in his life. So, first thing we learn here is that it begins with this idea, this, this kind of stubborn, this attitude I'm, I'm just going to do it my way. Secondly, we learn from, from Solomon's life is that theopolygamy flourishes, it grows as we try to juggle seeking both my kingdom over here and God's kingdom, right? I can do both. I can keep both as a priority in my life. Seeking my best, seeking my pleasures, my pursuits, the things that will satisfy me as I pursue pleasing God. You try to keep this juggling act up. You notice what we just read here? Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Solomon says he took Pharaoh's daughter, brought her into the city of David until he finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Did you notice the order there? Did you notice the order? Commentators agree on this. That this is it's fascinating. Solomon finished his own house first before finishing God's house. It might seem like a small detail; it's easy to miss. But what got done first? That's Solomon's first priority. And if you look at the size difference, it's big. I should have brought. I, I had a picture; it didn't fit very well here, but. Solomon's house is a lot bigger than God's house, and it got done first. It tells us something: whose kingdom really matters. To Solomon here. There's also the famous story of the Queen of Sheba who visits Solomon in chapter 11. She visits him to see about Solomon's great wisdom that he's so renowned for. And in chapter 11, that story demonstrates, and commentators agree here, that there's a market shift. From Solomon using this wisdom God gave him to govern God's people to care for them, to lovingly guide them, and instead he starts using his wisdom to gain favor, to gain notoriety, to surrounding kings and princes and princesses, to queens, to the important people in his retinue. Isn't that interesting? Your things get built first. Your gifts are used more for your benefit As for God's, all pursuing priorities divided against themselves cannot stand. One will win out, and it's usually our own. Third thing we learn here is that theopolygamy can be stopped when I pay attention to God-given thorns. God-given thorns. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, another paradox here, but it's true. Sometimes God sends you people to harass you, and it's a gift from him. I know it sounds crazy. Like, really? I, I never felt like that was a gift. But it can be. And we see this in Solomon's story here. Back in chapter 11, we see, read with me verses 9 through 14, or just listen. The Lord was angry with Solomon. His heart had turned away from the Lord. We read this earlier. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, you have not kept the covenant that I, comm- that I gave you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you. I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I won't do it in your days. If you go on to uh, verse 31. Skip down here. He said to, uh, actually, excuse me, go down to verse 14. The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. Then we see another adversary raised up. Verse 31. Jeroboam, Jeroboam, lifted his hand against the king. And it says in verse 31, he said to Jeroboam, God said to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces of the land. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm going to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon. I'm going to give you ten tribes. And towards the end of the story in verse 40, Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt. See what happens here? God raises up two people to harass Solomon because he's trying to worship two kings, trying to seek two kingdoms and not seek God wholeheartedly. God is trying to get his attention and bring him back to God, bring him back to faithful, bring him back to monogamy through this guy Hadad outside of God's people and Jeroboam within God's people, his servant. Guy right around the corner. I have found everywhere I've pastored that it's, at some point, God has given me a thorn in the form of a person. It might be you. <laughs> you could be the lucky one. In fact, if on your bulletin you I'm just kidding no, it'd be awful. We <laughs> singled you out. And sometimes he gives me that thorn to harass me, back to Theo, monogamy, back to faithfulness to him. Other times just to help me depend more on him. Other times just to look to Jesus, who endured opposition from sinful men all the time. And to draw near to him, because that's his heart. He knows that. But he gives that. Don't be like Solomon and go in attack mode, assuming, oh, they're worldly. Or, or they're straight from the, the gates of hell. They're from Satan. Sometimes it's a gift. Isn't that crazy? God can use that person in your life to draw you back to faithfulness to him, to get your attention, to make you depend on him more. Does that make sense? As he did here with Solomon. Last thing, God also provides a way out of theopolygamy. This is cool. Verses 34 through 37. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my statues and my uh, my commandments. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hands. I will give it to you, 10 tribes. Yet to his son, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. I want to encourage you, whenever you read the Old Testament, Even the saddest of Old Testament stories usually find a glimmer of grace, a shred of hope, and anticipates the full rescue plan that's going to come in Jesus Christ. A lamp in Jerusalem. That lamp will be Jesus who comes from the line of David, who God keeps alive. There's always this when you read the Old Testament, which is awesome. All of it points towards this great rescue plan in Jesus Christ. Even here glimmer of hope. 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul says this, if we are faithless, Jesus Christ remains faithful. He can't deny his own self. He can't deny his character. He can't be anything but faithful. Even now, friends, you may have given away ten pieces of yourself to your own kingdom to serve your own purposes, to polygamously run after other gods. God preserves you still. Jesus Christ is faithful where you and I are not Return then. Return to him. He's given you away through Jesus. He has preserved you through Jesus, even as you have been theo-polygamous in your life. How do you start to return? Find out how to seek and please God. Here's the takeaway this morning. We'll end here on the takeaway. Find out how to seek and please God. This is what you do when you're in an exclusive relationship with someone. You find out how to please them. Right? You watch your spouse's face when they take their first bite of the meal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You ask questions that will help you one day shop for that special gift. Especially if it's the same day you're asking the question. You really need to know. What pleases them? What do they like? You read books about love languages, or at least you pretend to read them. You put them next to your nightstand. You know it is there, so you get credit. So, so you can find out what most, though, pleases the other person. As you find out how to seek and please God, what you'll find is first of all, He appreciates quality time, one of the love languages. That's the first thing. Typically, That means finding time starting each day, just you and Him. That pleases God. That's one way you can seek Him. The psalmist so often speak of seeking one-on-one time with God in the morning because it kind of primes your whole day. Helps you love Him all day long. Let me give you a couple, uh, just little brief psalm verses here. Psalm 5, verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And the idea here is reading God's word, letting it inform you how to talk back to God, how to pray to him, how to speak to him. Then you get to watch as you pray. You ask things to God, you watch all the day long. Isn't that cool? I prepare the sacrifice of a prayer to you and then I watch you work all day. It doesn't happen if you don't seek him in the morning. Psalm 59, 16, also a psalm of David, says this, I will sing of your strength, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. That's interesting, right? Sing to him, seek him, love him in the morning, because you've been a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. What the psalmist here is envisioning is the day before, God protected him was there for him in all these tangible ways. So what does he do? He gets up the next morning, he remembers those things. He thanks God for those things. If you don't know how to spend time with God, how to seek him, a little one-on-one time, we got some great resources on our website under Starting Your Faith. If you going to recommend a resource, look at our Starting Your Faith it gives you some great recommendations. In the back, pick up, read, mark, learn or the Taste and See materials will give you ideas how you begin to do this in your life. Seek him in the morning. But of course, you can't be alone in the quiet with God, one-on-one all day. You must talk to humans, right? Prepare food, etc. <laughs> in your life. So here's how you seek God through everyday people, experiences, responsibilities. Here's some examples. Seek and please God through your earthly marriage. Find out what pleases God through your earthly marriage. I remember hearing a couple old dudes at a gas station talking about marriage many years ago, and they said, uh, this guy said, marriage is like two ticks and a dog. And it was like it was this backwards kind of country old gas station, and they go, Yeah, marriage is like two ticks and a dog. And I had to <laughs> think about it, and I didn't understand what that meant until I got married. Think about it for a moment as you were married. It doesn't have to be this way. But two, two people who want something but there's no, <laughs> there's, there's no dog. <laughs> there's no, everyone wants to get it from the other person, but it's not there because you're both trying to get it from that person. For Katie and I, it was this way for the first five years of our marriage. It still is sometimes. But back then, there were, there, there were needs. We, I didn't feel were being met. I didn't feel she was meeting them. Let me tell you how I didn't get those needs met, first of all. By raising my voice about it, manipulating situations so that she'd have to, like, help me and serve me in the ways I wanted to be served, by withdrawing from her to find those needs met elsewhere. Maybe she'll kind of recognize that I've withdrawn. Let me tell you, that is not the way those needs got met in my life. And instead of going to her first, what did first is go to God. Because he was the only one meeting all of my needs. Seeking him first, I found out what pleased God first in marriage. It turns out, as in Ephesians 5, that it's sacrificially serving her. So here's what I can do, God. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to seek you by serving her. And guess what? I'm now experiencing polyprovision of all my needs, or a lot of my needs. And I don't really have to ask her. Because I started by seeking God. Again, start there. You wouldn't think so, but that's where you start, pleasing Him. You can seek and please God through your finances. Let me tell you a true story. A friend was telling me the other day, um, Jim had been an alcoholic for more than a dozen years. He lost everything, including his wife and his son. And things did begin to change in his life after he trusted Jesus Christ. But he still fell regularly into old habits. It didn't help that he had lost his well-paying job and he was clerking at a grocery store that was well-stocked with only his favorite drinks, of course. After a few years of going back and forth between Christ and the bottle, he finally cut the ties and decided, I want to find out what's going to please Christ. And just seek that alone. And that necessitated quitting his only remaining job. It's Pretty radical. After an interview with a sheet metal company down the street from his new church, he cried out to God, said, God, I see that you are pleased with the first fruits. You like when I, when I trust you enough to give when I first get my paycheck or, or when i so I'm going to please you now, I'm going to do that. If you give me this job, I'm going to give you my first paycheck. Whew. He got the job. He clearly remembers the day when he got his first paycheck. He had stacks of bills that needed to be paid, right? But painless and determined, he endorsed his check over to the church, walked it over to the church office, not even waiting for Sunday morning service. Didn't wanna, he wanted to trust God. I want to give him the temptation. I'm going to give it now. And this is the moment he points to. as a turning point in his life because he stepped out and he put God first, trusting him to provide. It's radical to try that in our lives. Jim has been sober for 25 years. He's the manager at that sheet metal company, and he serves as an elder in his local church now. Seeking and please God through your finances. Let me give you one last example. Seek and please God through your losses. Seeking and pleasing God even through clenched teeth. Everyone experiences loss every day. You might lose a client lose something important to you. You lose a little bit of your reputation. You lose out an opportunity. Solomon spent the rest of his life, his sunset years, trying to kill the person who would be physically responsible for his family losing most of this kingdom. Of course, it was caused by his own unfaithfulness, his own polygamy. How radical would it have been if Solomon had taken Jeroboam out to lunch at a gov? You know, or the Hebrew, I don't, I don't think they had Mexican grills back then. So, you know, something that had unleavened bread. And they went out and they hung out. He put his arm around Jer- Jeroboam and he supported him. And he communicated, hey man, it was my fault that my family's going to lose out on most of this land. Don't make the same mistake I did. What if he did that? What if in his loss, he decided to seek God his way? Can you imagine Provision. This thorn comes, and he still seeks God. And he loves this person. He didn't do this, and guess what? Jeroboam does make the same mistake. Two chapters later, he goes old school in his idolatry and starts worshiping golden calves. Like I said, I've had a thorn everywhere. At least one time, everywhere I've went, my thorn. When I used to live in Tallahassee, Florida, was my good friend uh, Steve. Steve is a funny guy. I love, he was actually a hilarious dude. I, I loved being around him, but he was, he was not very mature and very disruptive. All right, he was one of our youth leaders. And anytime things were serious, Steve would always interrupt, distract the kids, because he was a gregarious, charming dude. And I, I love Steve. But he just wasn't very mature. He was a new Christian. And I met with Steve. Steve is one of my closest friends now. He was a former thorn. Anytime I see him, we, we meet together. When I go back and visit there, I love meeting with Steve. I just want to share this with you. I got this note from Steve this week. And this is, by the way, a credit to God. Not at all to me because this was God helping me, helping me, helping me. By the grace of God, seek him even in a thorn. He said to me this week, hey man, I just wanted to send you a quick note. I have to meet with a couple in our community group tonight, discuss a few topics. And one of them will relate to something hard I need to bring up in their lives. I know that sounds possibly very official when I say it that way. However, I have always looked to our meetings when you were confronting me as an example of humble leadership. It is always evident how you struggled with God on how to speak to me about issues you saw, but you wanted to do so in a way that encouraged me and strengthened our relationship as opposed to discouraging me and flexing your spiritual authority. Thank you for loving me and your leadership and setting an example worth attaining In the pursuit of the gospel, my brother, your ministry and seeking God continues to run deep in my soul. Let's pray. Father, help us seek you in all that we do, in all that we encounter. It is so tempting, Lord, to think that we have to provide, we have to get We have to secure everything for ourselves, to run after those things in our lives, to build our own kingdom, our own little kingdom. But Father, if we would just do things your way, I confess, Lord, I so often just want to do things my way. But we're also told, even in this story of Solomon, we get a little glimmer of hope that you, through Christ, preserve us still, you love us still. You beg us to return back to you. I pray this morning, Lord, that we would return to you through the cross of Christ. Many of us here have been juggling two kingdoms. Help us return to seeking one, to seeking you, the King of kings. And trust you to provide in abundance everything we need in our lives. You'll take care of us. You'll be our God. Help us seek you Our losses, our thorns, our marriages, our finances, every aspect of our life. Help us find out what pleases you.